The discovery of oil in the Middle East sharpened Western appetites for the area. Rivalry grew intense. One British official observed, The Germans already control the Baghdad Railway. They are believed, through the National Bank of Turkey, to be seeking to control navigation on the Mesopotamian rivers. And if they also get the oil concessions in Mesopotamia and Persia, they cannot fail to acquire enormous political influence at British expense in regions which are of supreme importance to India. The European rivalries were complicated by the teetering instability of the Arab world. The Ottoman Empire had been torn by revolution, religious dispute, and the nationalist aspirations of various Arab groups. G.H. Fitzmaurice, chief of the British Embassy at Constantinople, warned, The die is cast, and one must hope for the best. But the task of fusing and welding into one common Ottoman nationality, the mosaic of creeds, nationalities and tongues that go to make up the Ottoman Empire, will require iron determination and will tax the energies of the stoutest of hearts. The British believed they had little choice but to deal with the problems of the region. Among their reasons was one especially important fact. The British fleet was running on oil from the Middle East, and Britain needed its fleet. On August 4, 1914, the need for oil became imperative when Britain declared war on Germany. This was the beginning of World War I. The First World War brought about an alliance between the French, English, and Russians, who were called the Entente, or simply the Allies. Later, the United States and the Italians joined the Allied cause. Opposing the Allies were the Central Powers, Germany, Austria, and the Ottoman Empire. It has been claimed that the Turks were puppets of the Germans. Certainly, Germany plunged the Ottoman Empire unceremoniously into war through an abrupt action by German Admiral Sushon. Sushon arbitrarily led Turkish ships into battle against the Russian fleet. In his history, entitled Turkey in the World War, Ahmad Amin quoted from an indictment drawn up by the Turkish Attorney General. Turkey entered the war at a moment when the German offensive was halted on the Marne. The whole Turkish nation was dragged into the war as a result of the work of a German admiral who received his orders from the Kaiser. In other words, a great and historic empire had become a toy of this German admiral, whose very name was unknown to the Turkish people. Britain needed Arab blood to be spilled against the Turks. For their part, the Arabs yearned for independence from the Turks. Hussein Ali, the Grand Sharif of Mecca, was the Arab chieftain considered most likely to succeed in a military campaign. Indeed, Hussein and his sons had been planning rebellion for years. In July of 1915, Hussein and Sir Henry McMahon, the British High Commissioner in Egypt, began to correspond. In his first letter, Hussein clearly spelled out his goals. England to acknowledge the independence of the Arab countries, bounded on the north by Mersina and Adana up to the 37 degree of latitude. On the east, by the borders of Persia, up to the Gulf of Basra. On the south, 
by the Indian Ocean, with the exception of the position of Aden, to remain as it is. On the west, by the Red Sea, the Mediterranean Sea up to Mersina. England to approve of the proclamation of an Arab Caliphate of Islam. The area described is roughly bounded on the north by modern Turkey and includes Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Palestine. Not willing to create a powerful Arab federation, McMahon hedged. With regard to the questions of limits and boundaries, it would appear to be premature to consume our time in discussing such details. Hussein countered, Your Excellency will pardon me and permit me to say clearly that the coolness and hesitation which you have displayed in the question of the limits and boundaries by saying that the discussion of these at present is of no use and is a loss of time might be taken to infer an estrangement. McMahon haggled. He granted most of Hussein's territorial demands, including Palestine, but made the sessions subject to various conditions. One of the conditions was that French interests would not be damaged. Since Hussein was being promised virtually everything he wanted, he was willing to compromise. But he made one point very clear. At the end of the war, he would not tolerate a Western power in the region. We find it our duty that the eminent minister should be sure that at the first opportunity after this war is finished, we shall ask you for what we now leave to France in Beirut and its coasts. It is impossible to allow any derogation that gives France or any other power a span of land in those regions. On June 5, 1916, Hussein's sons, Emir Faisal and Emir Abdullah, proclaimed a revolt at Medina. Four days later, Sharif Hussein attacked the Turkish garrison at Mecca. The Arabs may have cooperated with the Allies, but they were fighting for independence. One of the leaders of the Arabs was a British officer, Thomas Edward Lawrence, better known as Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence was the liaison officer between the Arabs and the British in Egypt under General Allenby. Lawrence and Faisal became fast friends and jointly led a large Arab fighting force. Using brilliant guerrilla tactics, the Arabs harassed the Turks. Pinning down the enemy, often through hand-to-hand -hand combat, the Arabs allowed General Allenby to capture Jerusalem. Captain Littlehart, the chief military commentator of the Allied forces, reported, In the crucial weeks while Allenby's stroke was being prepared, and during its delivery, nearly half of the Turkish forces south of Damascus were distracted by Arab forces. What the absence of these forces meant to the success of Allenby's stroke, it was easy to see. Nor did the Arab operation end when it had opened the way. For in the issue, it was the Arabs who almost entirely wiped out the Fourth Army that might have barred the way to final victory. The wear and tear 
the bodily and mental strain on men and materiel applied by the Arabs prepared the way that produced the Turks' defeat. Jerusalem was liberated from Ottoman control by the British, but the ancient Arab city of Damascus was liberated by Lawrence and the Arabs. Lawrence reported their triumphant entry. This city of a quarter million souls went mad with joy. The men tossed their tarbushes to cheer. The women tore off their veils. Householders threw flowers, hangings, carpets into the road before us. Their wives leaned, screaming with laughter, through the lattices and splashed us with bath dippers of scent. Poor dervishes made themselves our running footmen, in front and behind, howling and cutting themselves with frenzy. And over the local cries and the shrilling of women came the measured roar of men's voices, chanting in waves which rolled along the squares and grew to a wall of shouts around us. Faisal, Nasser, Shukri, Urens. These were the names of the Arab leaders. Urens was Arabic for Lawrence. The Arabs would not have fought so bravely, nor would they have rejoiced so intensely, if they had known of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. This secret treaty had already been signed between the Allies in May of 1916. In essence, the agreement divided up the Middle East between Britain and France. Britain was to get the Levant, from Gaza south to the Red Sea, along with Transjordan, the Syrian desert, all of Mesopotamia south of Kirkuk, and most of the Persian Gulf coast of Arabia. When the Arabs did learn of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, they were so incensed they sent out feelers to the Turks. But Arabs still distrusted the Turks more than they distrusted the British. The negotiations fell through. The armistice of October 31, 1918, ended the Ottoman power in Arab lands west of the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea. The Arabs were free from the Turks, but would they be independent? The rise of international Zionism came at a time when the Western powers were showing great interest in the Holy Land. Protestants, especially from America and Britain, were establishing schools and posting missionaries there. A railroad built by the French connected Jaffa with Jerusalem. Thousands of pilgrims flooded by rail into the holy city. More and more, Palestine was becoming an international concern. For example, Zionism had an immense following in Russia, a country now in chaos after the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. Britain was not blind to the advantages of wooing international Jewish goodwill. Prime Minister David Lloyd George stated, As soon as I became Prime Minister, I talked the whole matter over with Mr. Balfour, who was then Foreign Secretary. We were anxious at that time to gather Jewish support. The Balfour Declaration of 1917 promised the Jews a home in Palestine. The British reasoning was outlined in the October 31st minutes of the British War Cabinet. The Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs stated that he gathered that everyone was now agreed that, from a purely diplomatic and political point of view, it was desirable that some declaration 
favorable to the aspirations of the Jewish nationalists should now be made. The vast majority of Jews in Russia and America, as indeed all over the world, now appeared to be favorable to Zionism. If we could make a declaration favorable to such an idea, we should be able to carry on extremely useful propaganda both in Russia and America. The Balfour Declaration of 1917 was a letter written by British Foreign Secretary Arthur James Balfour to Lord Rothschild, a Zionist leader. It read, Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the Cabinet. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Your sincerely, Arthur James Balfour. The Balfour Declaration did not promise a Jewish state, but merely a home in Palestine for the Jewish people. It specifically reserved the rights of the existing inhabitants. Nonetheless, the Balfour Declaration distressed and outraged Hussein. He was fighting for the territory now promised to the Zionists. The British representative, D.G. Hogarth, rushed to reassure the Arabs. The Entente powers are determined that the Arab race shall be given full opportunity of once again forming a nation in the world. So far as Palestine is concerned, we are determined that no people shall be subject to another. The leaders of the movement are determined to bring about the success of Zionism by friendship and cooperation with the Arabs, and such an offer is not one to be lightly thrown aside. Meanwhile, Emir Faisal, having liberated the interior of Syria, set up a provisional Arab regime in Damascus. The British were not pleased. British General Allenby emphasized the temporary nature of the Arab government. I gave the Emir Faisal an official assurance that whatever measures might be taken during the period of military administration, they were purely provisional and could not be allowed to prejudice the final settlement by the peace conference, at which, no doubt, the Arabs would have a representative. But Arab nationalists were growing uneasy. They asked the Allies for a statement of policy. The British and French gave a joint message on November 7, 1918. The object aimed at by France and Great Britain in prosecuting in the East the war is the complete and definite emancipation of the peoples so long oppressed by the Turks and the establishment of national governments and administrations deriving their authority from the initiative and free choice of the indigenous populations. Far from wishing to impose on the populations of these regions any particular institutions, they are only concerned to ensure by their support and by adequate assistance the regular working of governments and administrations freely chosen by the populations themselves 
such is the policy which the two allied governments uphold in the liberated territories. The Middle East settled into a three-cornered rivalry between the Arabs, the British, and the French. The French were in the weakest position, both politically and militarily. But, like the British, the French government realized that oil played an enormous role in its national security. Both governments were determined to preserve access to Middle Eastern oil. They had made statements supporting Arab sovereignty, but there were still greater priorities. Now there was a complication. The American president, Woodrow Wilson, was demanding self-determination for newly liberated peoples, including the Arabs of the Middle East. Access to oil would not be a simple matter. In the aftermath of World War I, President Woodrow Wilson formulated his famous 14 points. These points expressed the democratic objectives for which Wilson believed the United States had been fighting. Regarding the right of liberated people to self-determination, Wilson declared, Peoples and provinces are not to be bartered about from sovereignty to sovereignty as if they were mere chattels and pawns in a game. Even the great game, now forever discredited, of the balance of power. Every territorial settlement involved in this war must be made in the interest and for the benefit of the populations concerned, and not as part of a mere adjustment or compromise of claims amongst rival states. Wilson's statement seemed like the fresh air of freedom to the newly liberated peoples. The Arabs took it as a promise of independence, but the other allied powers were annoyed. After all, such issues as the self-determination of small nations had already been decided through secret treaties. The French Premier, Georges Clemenceau, could not help commenting, Mr. Wilson bores me with his 14 points. Why God Almighty has only 10? At the Paris Peace Conference, President Wilson insisted on a commission to analyze disputes in the Middle East. When the British and French balked, the Americans established their own committee of inquiry. This was the King Crane Commission, headed by two Americans, Henry King of Oberlin College and businessman Charles Crane. The commission visited Palestine, Syria, and Turkey to gather information. In August 1919, it reported, The commissioners began their study of Zionism with minds predisposed in its favor. But the actual facts in Palestine have driven them to the recommendation here made. Regarding Wilson's principle of self-determination, the commission pointed out, If the wishes of Palestine's population are to be decisive as to what is to be done with Palestine, then it is to be remembered that the non-Jewish population of Palestine, nearly nine-tenths of the whole, are emphatically against the entire Zionist program. The peace conference should not shut its eyes to the fact that the anti-Zionist feeling in Palestine and Syria is intense and not likely to be flouted. No British officer consulted by the commissioners believed that the Zionist program could be carried out except by force of arms. The recommendations of the King Crane Commission came to naught. Wilson's 14 points succumbed to the power politics of the French and the British. They were determined to annex the Ottoman territory into their own empires. Self-determination floundered. Wilson focused instead on another ideal of the 14 points, that is, 
The establishment of a League of Nations. Wilson defined the League as a general association of nations for the purpose of affording mutual guarantees of political independence and territorial integrity to great and small nations alike. To ensure Allied support for his League of Nations, Wilson compromised other principles. Americans at home decried the League, concerned about interference with American sovereignty, and upset that Wilson's compromises betrayed democratic ideals. The New Republic, formerly a supporter of Wilson, was appalled by the type of League that was being created through compromise. The European politicians, who with American complicity have hatched this inhumane monster, have acted either cynically, hypocritically, or vindictively, and their handiwork will breed future cynicism, hypocrisy, and vindictiveness in the minds of future generations. The American public bitterly criticized their president's behavior. Returning home, Wilson plunged into a headlong campaign to vindicate the League of Nations. The effort broke his health. Wilson suffered a paralytic stroke from which he never quite recovered. The ideal of self-determination had lost its champion. Indeed, by the time the King Crane Commission's findings reached Paris, President Wilson had already returned to America. The American public had already rejected post-war world politics to concentrate on domestic issues. The Arabs were on their own. The British and the French quickly assumed control of the Middle East. France acquired Syria and Lebanon. Britain occupied Iraq and Palestine, including Transjordan. The British controlled the massive oil fields of Iraq. They pulled the strings on a series of puppet governments from the Mediterranean Sea to India. They established an empire that reigned over a full one-quarter of the world. Lord Curzon, first Marquess of Kettleston, gave insight into the British mindset when he proclaimed grandly to the House of Lords, The British flag has never flown over a more powerful and united empire. Never did our voice count more in the councils of nations or in determining the future destinies of mankind. Harold Nicholson, Curzon's biographer, added, We possessed physical supremacy such as had never been known since the days of Hadrian or Alexander. We seemed the masters of the world. The Arabs were frenzied by the British betrayal. Riots and military uprisings ensued. The French brutally crushed the Arab revolt in Syria and drove Faisal into exile. The British took another approach. They placed Faisal on the throne of Iraq and put his brother, Abdullah, on the throne of Transjordan. Their father, Hussein, received token control of the west coast of Saudi Arabia, an area which Hussein himself had taken from the Turks. The Arab princes reluctantly deferred to western firepower, but the Palestinian population continued to riot throughout 1920 and 1921. The riots protested Jewish immigration and the new High Commissioner of Palestine, who was a Jew. In 1922, Winston Churchill, Secretary of the Colonial Office, issued a statement of policy outlining British intentions in the area. Referring to the Balfour Declaration, Churchill declared, the terms of the declaration referred to do not contemplate that Palestine as a whole 
should be converted into a Jewish national home, but that such a home should be founded in Palestine. Contributions by Zionist organizations and wealthy individuals, such as those by Baron Rothschild back in the 1880s and 1890s, had allowed Jews to purchase fertile land from absentee feudal landlords. Once the Zionists held title, they dispossessed the Arab farmers who had worked the land for generations. The situation was made more explosive by the Zionist policy of hiring only Jewish labor, thus creating Arab unemployment. Dispossessed Arab farmers were the first Palestinians to live in refugee camps. They formed the basis of the Fedayeen warriors of the Arab struggle for independence. Fedayeen means those who sacrifice themselves. Churchill had warned, Immigration cannot be so great in volume as to exceed whatever may be the economic capacity of the country at the time to absorb new arrivals. It is essential to ensure that the immigrants should not be a burden upon the people of Palestine as a whole and that they should not deprive any section of the present population of their employment. Some of the Jewish Palestinians also clung to the hope that they could cooperate with the Arabs. An early settler, Israel Belkand, pleaded, It is certain that among the Palestinian Arabs we meet a great number of our own people who had been severed from us for the last 1500 years. Based upon these facts, we shall determine our attitude to them. And it is clear that our relationship can be only that of brothers, not only brothers in the political sense, since history decrees that we share the same state together, but also brothers to the same race, the sons of the same nation. Other Zionist leaders were determined to establish a Jewish homeland in spite of the impact on Arabs. Chaim Weizmann proclaimed, I trust to God that a Jewish state will come about, that Palestine shall be as Jewish as England is English. Churchill stirred controversy in his statement of policy by denying that the British and Arabs had made any deal concerning Palestine. Churchill claimed, In the first place, it is not the case, as has been represented by the Arab delegation, that during the war, His Majesty's government gave an undertaking that an independent national government should be at once established in Palestine. This representation mainly rests upon a letter dated 24th October 1915 from Sir Henry McMahon to the Sharif of Mecca, now King Hussein. That letter excluded from its scope, among other territories, the portions of Syria lying to the west of the district of Damascus. The whole of Palestine west of the Jordan was thus excluded from Sir H. McMahon's pledge. Sir Henry McMahon himself denied there was a deal with the Arabs. He claimed that Palestine had never been included in any pledge to the Arabs and that Hussein had understood this. 
Hussein had no such understanding. But the war was over, and the British had won. Decades later, a secret document entitled Memorandum on British Commitments to King Hussein was declassified. The memo had been prepared by the Political Intelligence Department of the British Foreign Service. It reads, in part, With regard to Palestine, His Majesty's government are committed by Sir Henry McMahon's letter to the Sharif of October 24, 1915, to its inclusion in the boundaries of Arab independence. A secret memorandum, which Arthur Balfour addressed to the British cabinet in 1919, was even more blunt. The four great powers are committed to Zionism. And Zionism, be it right or wrong, good or bad, is rooted in age-long traditions, in present needs, in future hopes, of far profounder import than the desires and prejudices of the 700,000 Arabs who now inhabit that ancient land. In short, so far as Palestine is concerned, the powers have made no declaration of policy which, at least in the letter, they have not always intended to violate. World War I had been total war. Backroom diplomacy had proliferated. Through a slew of secret agreements, two or more parties were often promised the same piece of land. Even before the war was over, the British, Russians, French, and Italians had carved up the spoils of the Ottoman Empire. The Turks had maintained the delicate balance of the Middle East for over four centuries. The region now seemed to be hopelessly fragmented. Palestine, in particular, was a wellspring of conflict. Arab and Jewish claims to the land of Palestine clashed not only with each other, but with those of the British. Violence was inevitable. Najib Azouri, a Christian Arab from Palestine and founder of the League of the Arab Homeland, clearly foresaw the future of his country. Two important phenomena of the same nature, though opposed, manifest themselves at this moment. They are the awakening of the Arab nations and the efforts of the Jews to reconstruct on a very large scale the ancient monarchy of Israel. These two movements are destined to combat each other continually until one of them takes Palestine. In 1920, the League of Nations established the British Mandate. That is, it commissioned Britain to administer the government and affairs of Palestine. Sir Herbert Samuel, a Zionist and a Jew, was appointed High Commissioner for Palestine. The Arabs rioted, and the British crushed the revolt. Jews responded by organizing the Haganah, or self-defense, which was a militia for defending Jewish settlements. The world watched with mixed feelings. After World War I, the Western nations had started to scout Arab lands for oil. The British claimed the rich oil fields of Iraq, and Standard Oil of New York explored Palestine. Western governments and oil companies had to confront a political reality. Arab nationalism was on the rise. 
Syria was in a state of almost constant revolt for independence. In Arabia, Ibn Saud was beginning the conquest that would make him king of a renamed nation, Saudi Arabia. The American, John Foster Dulles, later Secretary of State, acknowledged, The U.S. must regard Arab nationalism as a flood which is running strongly. We cannot successfully oppose it, but we could put sandbags around positions we must protect, the first groups being Israel and Lebanon, and the second being the oil positions around the Persian Gulf. A Palestine ruled by either the Jews or the British did not fit in with Arab nationalism. Arab fears were confirmed in 1922 when Britain went beyond its mandate and created the Emirate of Transjordan by severing land from Palestine. Transjordan was created without the consent of the League of Nations. The American response to the turbulence in Palestine was subdued. Only a few years earlier, President Woodrow Wilson had pleaded the Arab case before the U.S. Congress. Nationalities which are now under Turkish rule should be assured an undoubted security of life and an absolutely unmolested opportunity of autonomous development. But the American public was war-weary. In his inaugural address, Wilson's successor, President Warren Harding, solemnly promised that America would seek no part in directing the destinies of the world. America entered a period of isolationism. Immigration was restricted. Tariffs were raised. Government policy looked inward to domestic matters. Harding admonished, Prosper America first. In 1923, his successor, Calvin Coolidge, proclaimed, The business of America is business. The next president, Herbert Hoover, vowed, We shall soon, with the help of God, be in sight of the day when poverty will be abolished from this nation. When Americans did look abroad, it was with suspicion. The Soviet Union had emerged from the ashes of World War I as a major power. The Soviet leader, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, openly declared the goal of world communism. The new Bolshevik government issued an appeal entitled, To All the Toiling Muslims. The rule of the robbers who have enslaved the peoples of the world is falling. A new world is being born, a world of workers and of freed people. Russia is not alone in this sacred cause. The peoples of Europe, exhausted by war, are already stretching out their hands to us, and faraway India has already raised the banner of insurrection, calling the peoples of the East to struggle and liberation. Americans took the threat of communism seriously. This post-World War I era is known as the Red Scare. The American Communist Party was driven underground. Undesirable aliens were summarily deported. The United States was building a protective wall around itself. The Great Depression of 1929 reinforced this wall, as America focused intently on its own domestic problems and away from world problems. By 1929, there were 156,000 Jewish settlers in Palestine, double the number of ten years before. These settlers owned approximately 4% of Palestine, but these areas comprised about 14% of Palestine's workable land. 
The method by which they had acquired the land was a point of bitter contention. Absentee feudal landlords had long held title to many villages where Palestinians lived, worked, and died. Now the Zionists purchased the villages and evicted their inhabitants. Arabs flocked to cities for work, but the Jews owned most of the industry of Palestine, and they had a policy of not hiring Arabs. When an Arab could find work, he was paid less than a Jew. Arab unemployment soared. Violence erupted. The American journalist Vincent Sheehan reported on the riots of 1929. I was bitterly indignant with the Zionists for having, as I believed, brought on this disaster. I was shocked into hysteria by the ferocity of the Arab anger, and I was aghast at the inadequacy of the British government. Although I had spent a good part of my life amid scenes of violence and was no stranger to the sight of blood and dying men, I had never overcome my loathing for the spectacle, even when it seemed compelled by historical necessity. But here, in this miserable little country, I could see no historical necessity whatever. The official British casualty lists show 207 people dead and 279 wounded. Arab bitterness burned. The Zionists continued to arm. The British continued to create commissions of inquiry. The Shaw Commission and the Hope Simpson Royal Commission both recommended that Jewish immigration and land purchases be restricted. The recommendations were defeated by a pro-Zionist publicity campaign in Britain. The Arabs were now convinced that Britain's earlier promises of protection would not be honored. Even the League of Nations would provide no aid. Internal conflicts and compromises had rendered the League powerless. In 1936, the Arabs went on a six-month general strike, seeking economic reforms and a moratorium on all debt. The Arabs were willing to call off the strike if the British would end Jewish immigration. Instead, the British increased the immigration quota by 10%. The British established a port at Tel Aviv under Jewish control. This became the port of entry for thousands of illegal Jewish settlers. Meanwhile, the Arab port of Jaffa, just two miles down the road, was virtually closed down. The British evacuated 6,000 persons from their homes in Jaffa, blowing up 237 houses in the process. The British dispatched yet another commission. In 1937, the Peel Commission recommended partitioning Palestine into two states, one controlled by Jews, the other by Arabs. The British had to send more troops to crush the resulting Arab revolt. But military might could not solve this political problem. The staunch Zionist, David Ben-Gurion, acknowledged this. The revolt is an active resistance by the Palestinians to what they regard as a usurpation of their homeland by the Jews. Behind the terrorism is a movement which, though primitive, is not devoid of idealism and self-sacrifice. The British, with a long history of using one native group against another, began to arm the Zionists. By 1939, some 14,500 Jews were being trained by the British military. 
The Arab revolt ended in 1939. After three years of violence, Arab dead were estimated at 5,000. The Jewish death toll was 463. The British, 101. A number of prominent Arabs were driven into exile. The British sent another commission to investigate. Its findings were known as the MacDonald White Paper. His Majesty's government, after careful study of the Partition Commission's report, have reached the conclusion that the political, administrative, and financial difficulties involved in the proposal to create independent Arab and Jewish states inside Palestine are so great that this solution is impracticable. The MacDonald White Paper recommended admitting an additional 75,000 Jews to Palestine over a period of five years. After that, no more would be admitted without Arab consent. The Zionists were outraged. The white paper was torn to pieces by the Grand Rabbi of Jerusalem. The pieces were set on fire by his congregation. The Jewish Agency, a virtual Jewish government within the British mandate, issued a veiled threat. Jewish pioneers, who in the past three generations have shown their strength in the upbuilding of a derelict country, will from now on display the same strength in defending Jewish immigration, the Jewish home, and Jewish freedom. There were Zionist demonstrations. A British policeman was killed. An Arab movie theater was bombed. An Arab village attacked. David Ben-Gurion, chairman of the Jewish agency, proclaimed, This is the beginning of Jewish resistance to the disastrous policy now proposed by His Majesty's government. The Jews will not be intimidated into surrender, even if their blood be shed. Since the British mandate, Palestine's population had more than doubled to a million five hundred thousand. Of the increase, over forty percent were Jewish settlers. Many Jews fled the growing anti-Semitism of an increasingly fascist Europe. The United States was the home of choice for many, but America had rigid quotas on immigration. So most refugees migrated instead toward a new life in the promised land of Palestine. But the wisdom of building a Jewish nation was still actively debated within Judaism itself. Some leaders like Judah Magnus, first president of the Hebrew University, favored cultural, not political, Zionism. Cultural Zionists stressed the spiritual rather than the national growth of Judaism. Shortly after the MacDonald White Paper was published, Magnus wrote, The time has come for the Jews to take into account the Arab factor as the most important facing us. If we have a just cause, so have they. If promises were made to us, so were they to the Arabs. Even more realistic than the ugly realities of imperialism is the fact that the Arabs live here and will probably be here long after the collapse of one imperialism and the rise of another. If we too wish to live in this space, we must live with the Arabs, try to make peace with them. I do not know if this is possible, but this is a task worthy of Jews. World War II would make such voices of moderation fade to a whisper.
Throughout the 1930s, the United States believed that if war came to Europe or Asia, it would be able to maintain a separate peace. In 1933, Franklin D. Roosevelt had become president by promising to put America's economic house in order. Roosevelt's first inaugural address made only one reference to foreign policy. His second inaugural address made no reference at all. But America was becoming internationally involved, whether it wanted to or not. This was especially true with respect to oil. In 1933, a joint venture between Standard Oil of California and Texaco received a 66-year oil concession over eastern Saudi Arabia. This company eventually became the Arab American Oil Company, known as Aramco. At the American government's urging, hundreds of billions of dollars were being invested in the Middle East. Huge fortunes were being realized. As the oil companies continued to work within the region, they became entangled in its conflicts. They became especially nervous about social unrest, which might lead to nationalization. James Forrestal, soon to be Secretary of the Navy, explained the connection between oil and America's security. The prestige and hence the influence of the United States is in part related to oil resources, foreign as well as domestic. It is assumed, therefore, that the bargaining power of the United States in international conferences involving vital materials like oil and such problems as aviation, shipping, island bases, and international security agreements relating to the disposition of armed forces and facilities will depend in some degree upon the retention by the United States of such oil resources. On September 3, 1939, Britain declared war on Nazi Germany. World War II had commenced. The Middle East was spared most of the military hostilities of World War II. Indeed, the region did not become embroiled in the conflict until 1941. Germany preferred to attack England and France directly, rather than to wage war on their colonies. But Italy, Germany's Axis partner, was hungry for territory. On July 4, 1940, the Italians invaded the Sudan. On September 3rd, Italian troops pushed into Egypt, only to be driven back by the British. Italian forces were placed under German control. By 1942, the brilliant German general Erwin Rommel was at Al Alamein, only 70 miles from Cairo. The defeat of the Germans at Stalingrad and the success of the British in Africa saved the Middle East from the devastation of modern warfare. During World War II, four groups claimed Palestine. First, there were the Palestinians, who waited impatiently to see how the war would affect them. Second, there was the League of Arab States. With British encouragement, seven Arab states had organized themselves into a league. One of its main goals was to maintain Palestine as an Arab state but rivalry within the League prevented it from being effective. Third, there were the British, who continued to pursue impossible goals. They wished to govern Palestine while maintaining the support of both Arabs and Jews. Fourth, there were the Zionists. When World War II began, 30,000 Jews in Palestine had volunteered for service in the British forces. The war offered them the opportunity to train men for a future Jewish army. But not all of Zionists cooperated with the Allies. 
The Stern Gang, a radical terrorist group, offered to cooperate with National Socialist Germany against the British. They hoped to hasten a British withdrawal from Palestine. When the British continued to block immigration into Palestine, Zionists looked to America for support. In May 1942, at the Biltmore Hotel in New York, a Zionist conference passed the following resolution. The conference declares that the new world order that will follow victory cannot be established on foundations of peace, justice, and equality unless the problem of Jewish homelessness is finally solved. The conference urges that the gates of Palestine be opened, that the Jewish agency be vested with control of immigration into Palestine and with the necessary authority for upbuilding the country, and that Palestine be established as a Jewish commonwealth. The American general Patrick Hurley visited the Middle East and reported back to President Roosevelt. The Zionist organization in Palestine has indicated its commitment to an enlarged program for a a sovereign Jewish state which would embrace Palestine and probably Transjordan. B. An actual transfer of the Arab population from Palestine to Iraq. C. Jewish leadership for the whole Middle East in the fields of economic development and control. The Zionist program was stimulated by the tragedy befalling European Jewry. Across Europe, Jews were fleeing for their lives from the hideous discrimination and brutality of Nazism. But the doors of the world were closing in their faces. Morris Ernst, an attorney and a friend of Roosevelt, went to London to arrange asylum for Jewish refugees in England. The British agreed to accept 150,000 immigrants if the U.S. would accept the same number. Roosevelt refused. When Ernst demanded an explanation, Roosevelt replied, We can't put it over because the dominant, vocal Jewish leadership of America won't stand for it. The Zionist movement knows that they can raise vast sums for Palestine by saying to donors, There is no other place this Jew can go. But if there is a world political asylum for all people, irrespective of race, creed, or color, then the people who do not want to give the money will have an excuse to say, What do you mean there is no place they can go but Palestine? They are the preferred wards of the world. The Jews were left to perish in Europe. In early 1945, as World War II drew to a close, King Saud of Saudi Arabia met with President Roosevelt. The king expressed his concern about the number of European Jews emigrating to Palestine. He suggested instead that displaced Jews who survived the Holocaust should be given part of Germany. A memorandum of the meeting states, His Majesty called attention to the increasing threat to the existence of the Arabs and the crisis which has resulted from continued Jewish immigration and the purchase of land by the Jews. His Majesty further stated that the Arabs would choose to die rather than yield their lands to the Jews. Wallace Murray, Director of Near Eastern Affairs in the American State Department, warned, 
the President's continued support of Zionism may thus lead to actual bloodshed and even endanger the security of our immensely valuable oil concession in Saudi Arabia. The continued endorsement by the President of Zionist objectives could throw the entire Arab world into the arms of the Soviet Union. Roosevelt assured King Saud that Arab interests would not be jeopardized. But within a few months, on April 12, 1945, President Roosevelt died suddenly of a cerebral hemorrhage. His successor, Harry S. Truman, took a pro-Zionist position and recommended that 100,000 Jewish refugees be settled in Palestine. The 100,000 figure was not arbitrary. After World War II, some 100,000 Jewish survivors of the Nazi Holocaust were in camps for displaced persons. They were the remnants of a rich culture that had numbered in the millions only years before. The refugees lived in squalor, diseased and overcrowded. They demanded a home. Richard Crossman, a member of the Anglo-American Committee of Inquiry on Displaced People, stated, Hitler created in Central and Eastern Europe a Jewish nation without a home. This nation must migrate. Zionists demanded that 100,000 refugees be admitted to Palestine immediately. To control the flood of illegal immigrants, the British introduced a series of laws in Palestine called the Defense Regulations. Habeas corpus was suspended. People could be imprisoned without trial. Entire villages could be moved at the whim of military authorities. Curfews and security zones could be established by force. Anyone could be expelled from the country without explanation. The Zionists started a program of terrorism against the British. There were three main Jewish military organizations. The Haganah, a regular militia, which would later become the Israeli army. The Urgun Zvai Leumi, or national military organization, of about 5,000 irregulars who engaged in terrorism. And the Stern Gang, a splinter group of the Irgun. Menachem Begin was the leader of the Irgun, and the mastermind behind the most infamous act of Jewish terrorism, the bombing of British headquarters at the King David Hotel. Over 85 people died. Fifteen were Jews. The American writer Ben Hecht declared in the New York Herald Tribune that what he called the Jews of America were behind the Zionists. Every time you blow up a British arsenal, or wreck a British jail, or send a British railroad train sky high, or rob a British bank, or let go with your guns and bombs at the British betrayers and invaders of your homeland, the Jews of America make a little holiday in their hearts. Brave friends, we are working to help you. We are raising funds for you. The official American response was muted. President Truman was far more concerned with the spread of communism in Europe than with Middle Eastern affairs. This was the Cold War. The Soviet principles of communism came into direct conflict with America's democratic principles. Both the U.S. and the U.S.S.R. had emerged from the war as young, dynamic nations. Both were hungry for world power. In this tense atmosphere, the United Nations had been established in 1945 at a conference in San Francisco. Truman announced to the assembled nations, you members of the conference 
are to be the architects of a better world. Fifty governments signed the Charter of the UN. They mutually pledged to refrain from armed force except in the common interest. A general assembly of the nations was authorized to investigate any issues endangering international peace. A security council was empowered to meet any threat of war through any measures that might prove necessary. In March 1947, Truman laid down the general outline of an American policy to contain communism. It was called the Truman Doctrine. One of the primary objectives of the foreign policy of the United States is the creation of conditions in which we and other nations will be able to work out a way of life free from coercion. I believe that it must be the policy of the United States to support freely the peoples who are resisting subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. In August 1949, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, was formed under American leadership. Twelve signatories mutually agreed that an attack against one of them would be considered an attack against them all. There would be no retreat before the threat of communism in the Middle East or elsewhere. Meanwhile, the Zionist insurrection accelerated. The corpses of two British officers were hung from a tree, then booby-trapped. The British embassy in Rome was bombed. Letter bombs were mailed to British ministers. The death of British soldiers, combined with an annual administrative expense of 30 to 40 million pounds sterling, proved too much for the battle-weary British. Britain turned the matter of Palestine over to the United Nations.